Hi, everybody. It's Sarah Ivory, host of Vox Tablet, the weekly podcast of Tablet Magazine. Today, we're taking a serious look at an age-old condition. First, a joke. So a Frenchman, a German, and a Jew walk into a bar. I'm tired and thirsty, says the Frenchman. I must have wine. I'm tired and thirsty, says the German. I must have beer. I'm tired and thirsty, says the Jew. Must have diabetes. Jews and hypochondria, it's a worn stereotype, and it's the source of plenty of Borscht Belt humor. But hypochondria as a disorder is no laughing matter. It can wreak havoc on people's lives. It strains an already faltering healthcare system. And it's not going away, especially in an age when we're constantly bombarded with information about rare diseases and scary epidemics. Today, we're taking an in-depth look at hypochondria. We bring you a radio documentary called Living with Hypochondria, The Real Costs of Imagined Illness. It's a half-hour-long piece written and produced by Karen Brown for WFCR Public Radio. I was one of those kids that just whatever we learned about in health class, I developed symptoms of it. Any small symptom, I would actually manage to turn it larger through my mind. If I had a headache, it was automatically a tumor. I could be inflicted with some parasite that's limited to the southern part of Uganda or, you know, a tumor that was described in the literature in 1932 and not heard of since. And I remember one day listening to the radio and... There was a show about heart disease and heart attacks, and it just freaked me out. You're laughing at the fact that, okay, this is probably nothing, but deep in your heart, you think it's probably something. Hypochondria is easy to make fun of. Certainly Woody Allen, the quintessential neurotic, knew that. He developed whole plot themes around his character's obsessions with medical catastrophes. I got the classic symptoms of a brain tumor. Two months ago, you thought you had a malignant melanoma. Naturally, I, I, you know, I had the sudden appearance of a black spot on my back. It was on your shirt. I, I was, Medical I students are famous for developing hypochondria while studying rare diseases. The more you learn about an ailment, the more you think you have it. It's even an occupational hazard of some health journalists. I, for one, was convinced I had West Nile virus after covering a story about mosquito-borne diseases. I think, I think I'm developing a hearing loss in my right ear. Oh, my left ear. My, my left ear. No, I'm sorry. It's my right, my, right, my right or my left ear. No. The thing is, hypochondria may seem funny, but it's not benign. In its extreme clinical version, it's called hypochondriasis, a condition that's not only debilitating for the individual and his or her family, but a strain on the entire healthcare system. And in this age of anxiety, the hypochondria caseload is worrying doctors, psychologists, and health economists who are all looking for ways to mitigate the real costs of imagined illness. Most people have at some point wondered if that nagging headache could be a tumor or if that dark spot could be skin cancer. That's human nature. What makes you a true hypochondriac is the extent to which you are willing, or not, to believe good news. People who are true hypochondriacs aren't reassured by 
test results. Benjamin Lipson is chief of psychiatry at Bay State Medical Center in Springfield, Massachusetts. So if you do a CAT scan to look for a brain tumor, they want to have an MRI. If the MRI is normal, they want to have a PET scan. It's very hard to reassure somebody who is convinced that there is something terribly wrong. Psychiatrists describe hypochondriasis as a form of clinical anxiety, one that typically sets in after adolescence. It can get so extreme, patients actually feel sick. Those twinges and run-of-the-mill sensations that most people just ignore, they get magnified in hypochondriacs. I get irritated when, you know, they'll say, it's all in your head, and I'm like, it's really not all in my head. (laughs) If you're a hypochondriac, you feel pain. You're not imagining pain. You're creating pain through your mind. I mean, hypochondriacs can create these feedback loops where if you keep poking something, it will start to hurt. That's Morgan Griffin, a Northampton-based health writer. He's taken a keen interest in the psychology of hypochondriacs. He considers himself a classic one. I remember, actually, my first awareness was of lymph nodes was watching an episode of ER. And it was just one of those things that was like, huh, okay, lymph nodes in your neck. I got to keep an eye on that. I went through a period where I was checking them so frequently that they did start to swell up. Hypochondriacs will often complain of a vague general malaise. And in fact, Dr. Lipson says the worrying itself can wreak havoc on your system, say through lack of sleep or constant tension. I think some of it is that the person just doesn't feel well and they don't know why. And it's easier to come up with a physical explanation than to accept that I'm depressed or unhappy, there's something else going on in my life. I think it afflicts people who are generally more intense about life. I'm the sort of person who obsesses over every public appearance, who is constantly uh, worried that his life is going to collapse in abject failure the next minute, even though I might be at a point in my life where I'm getting nothing but accolades. Jean Weingarten is a Pulitzer Prize-winning newspaper journalist who wrote the quasi-humorous book The Hypochondriac's Guide to Life and Death. He traces his own hypochondria to a beloved childhood doctor. Dr. Katzev uh, was a man who really believed in letting things take their course. He didn't believe in babying you, and he didn't baby me. And I got better all the time whenever I was sick. I really loved Dr. Katzev, and respected him, until when I was 21 years old, he died of a cold. And I think from that time on, I no longer thought that uh, the best way to deal with illness was to ignore it. Weingarten didn't just worry about colds that could turn deadly. He'd obsess about completely unlikely or obscure diseases, based on little to no evidence. Like the time Weingarten was feeling a mild pain in his jaw, he went to a dentist who distractedly mentioned a syndrome that afflicted World War I soldiers. They would fall on their rifles in battle, and the jolt would cause severe dental trauma. And uh, about six months afterwards, their teeth started falling out one by one. And from that point on, my pain got a little worse, and I kept kind of shimmering my trying to see if I could shake my teeth. And boy, they felt a little looser than that. And I imagined myself six months hence not having a tooth in my head. Hypochondriacs are like magpies, you know. They pick up information from all over the place and store it away. Morgan Griffin. For me, it was the Encyclopedia Britannica, the kid whose spleen ruptured in high school. It was that after-school special about the kid who had a, a cough, and it turns out to be something horrible. The rarer the disease, the better to fixate on, because from the hypochondriac's perspective, those are the ones the doctor is most likely to miss. 
Morgan Griffin's worry of choice was lupus, an autoimmune disease that's almost never found in men. To win over his doctor, Griffin became intent on proving he had a low-grade fever, one possible symptom of lupus, and many other things. I started to carry a thermometer around with me. I was out bowling with my in-laws, and I would go into the bathroom, close the bathroom stall, take out the thermometer, and take my temperature. I mean, it just it was this this total conviction that at some point I would be vindicated. That obsessiveness is what makes hypochondriasis so hard to live with. 38-year-old Shelby Marowitz of East Hampton has been anxious since childhood. My parents divorced when I was really little. So I think I always sort of had a like a big worry in my life, you know, that things are uncertain. Today, she's a preschool teacher, wife and mother of two who is easily pushed into medical panic. You know, like when um, Magic Johnson had HIV, and I was like, I I developed HIV symptoms. The night sweats were happening, and now I have lesions, and I definitely have, you know, full-blown AIDS. Uh, Like she had this, like what she always calls choking feeling in her throat. Shelby's husband, Zach Marowitz. So she woke up one night deciding that this was oral thrush. Um, which is a symptom, can be a symptom if you have HIV. And, and she didn't even know what oral thrush was. <laughs> she just thought, I think it's this. And so she was convinced, again, it was a symptom of HIV. This is despite already having had three tests that said she didn't have HIV and us being in a monogamous relationship for years. So it gets pretty irrational. The American Psychological Association estimates that clinical hypochondriasis affects about 5% of the population. And that's not counting the milder cases, the worried well, as they're often called. Although there's little empirical research on hypochondria, many doctors, judging from their own caseloads, think the rate is going up. It seems to be an increasing problem, and there certainly is, I think, a kind of societal focus on health now that sort of fosters that. Psychiatrist Arthur Barsky at Harvard Medical School is one of the country's premier hypochondria experts. He wrote the book Worried Sick, Our Troubled Quest for Wellness. Every single study with vitamin D and every report of a brain tumor from a cell phone and all this kind of stuff, I think really does heighten people's anxiety. So there is a sense that people are more concerned about health and more worried about it than they used to be. And these days, scary information can spread very quickly. Arthur Barsky thinks the Internet drives health anxiety, especially those medical websites that list every conceivable symptom and worst-case outcome. There's even a term, cyberchondria, a uniquely modern combination of too much stress and too much information. Just like you have swollen glands, fever. Morgan Griffin has thought a lot about cyberchondria. As a writer for a medical website himself, and in his weaker moments, a consumer of that same information. This is the classic nightmare for the hypochondriac. Causes of swollen lymph nodes. The first one is common cold, infections, viruses, mono. The hypochondriac will now skip past all the benign ones and start looking for the truly horrible ones. Lymphoma, Hodgkin's disease, leukemia, tuberculosis. Griffin is aware that other hypochondriacs are probably reading his medical web entries in a panic at four in the morning. So he tries not to sensationalize medical conditions, and he always includes hard data on risk and probability. 
But he doesn't think the medium per se is the problem. All the health information on the internet is actually reflective of a larger issue, which is the proactive patient who is looking after her own health and being vigilant and talking to the doctor, and you're no longer relying on the doctor to tell you things. You know, obviously that has is very good in lots of ways, but the bad way, a hypochondriac being told you're responsible for your health is sort of a, a disaster. Well, the classic well-educated patient comes into the exam room very uh, worried with a handful of printouts from internet sites. You know, it may say that uh, we really have to do a high-sensitivity C-protein test on them to make sure they don't have heart disease. Northampton doctor Daniel Levy has worked in primary and emergency care for 20 years. He thinks class, education, and income play a role in hypochondria. If you treat the academic population around Amherst, you're going to see far, far more people worried about the minutiae of their health care than if you are running a health center in Springfield. When Levy worked with indigent patients, he had problems getting the truly sick to come in at all. When he started working with middle and upper income patients, he saw many more people who diagnosed themselves with unlikely diseases, an observation that's been borne out in recent national studies. Levy blames a culture of medical paranoia, one that's strongly rooted in media trends. A deep ache all over. I found out that connected to our muscles are nerves that send... There are certainly a lot of drivers of medical anxiety that can be traced to, to drug companies and their advertisements. Every day, people are getting bombarded with this huge list of very general symptoms, which the company then tells them this could be a sign of, you know, fill in the blanks here. FDA approved to reduce the risk of heart attack, stroke and certain kinds of heart surgeries if you have several It doesn't help that in recent years there's been increasing publicity and patient advocacy around chronic health conditions with vague symptoms from headaches to fatigue. How my muscles just ache all over my body just doesn't go away. It's so baffling. Does this sound like the pain you've been experiencing? And they'll come in with a printout saying, I think I have this condition. Uh, I want you to do a test for Lyme disease or uh, I think I have fibromyalgia. And uh, I, I read about a virus and I want you to test for it. Bay State psychiatrist Benjamin Lipson sits on a state medical committee that evaluates the overuse of medical services. One of the other things that goes with hypochondriasis is they'll go doctor shopping. So if Dr. A won't uh, take them seriously and go along with their requests, uh, they will try to go see Dr. B. In some cases, of course, getting a second opinion is perfectly reasonable. It's somewhere, Lipson says, between the second opinion and the tenth one that hypochondria becomes not just the patient's problem, but everyone's. What's the matter with you? You're all white. I feel dizzy. You know, I don't feel well. Do you hear a ringing? Jesus, if I have a brain tumor, I don't know what I'm going to do. don't have a brain tumor. He didn't say you had a brain tumor. No, naturally, they're not going to tell you because, well, you know, the, sometimes the weaker ones will panic if but you tell them. Although hypochondria is considered a mental disorder, it shows up most frequently in the primary care office. Dr. Arthur Barsky says a national crisis in primary care only makes matters worse. 
Over the last decade, the number of primary care doctors has declined. Waiting times have gotten longer. Sick visits have gotten shorter. I think there is a general erosion of that, of trust in the doctor-patient relationship. People really are a lot more suspicious. It erodes the doctor's power to reassure to comfort people, to ease their concerns. I feel very sorry for a lot of hypochondriacs who have developed really bad relationships with their doctors because they're constantly, they don't trust them and they're constantly second-guessing them and convince their doctors blowing them off, which some do. I've had people threaten to sue me. They said, oh, why aren't you already in MRI? You doctors, you're all in cahoots with the insurers and you're not ordering an MRI. It's very hard to convince such a person that, that that's not the case. Daniel Levy is a governing member of the American College of Physicians. He says many doctors feel they have little recourse but to indulge patients' worries. It's a pretty litigious society. Doctors are getting sued all the time. And um, actually, one of the commonest bases for a malpractice suit is failure to diagnose. So if someone comes in complaining of uh, symptoms which they're afraid might be the harbinger of some serious illness... No matter how improbable, one feels compelled to allay their fears. The problem, he says, is when doctors are pushed to investigate not by their medical know-how, but by a fear of lawsuits or by a simple wish for expediency. I mean, doctors are hugely rushed, and I'm interested in having my patients feel happy that they're getting the care that they want. But there's a lot of people getting tests they don't need and a lot of expenses being dumped on the health system, which don't buy us anything. And there are actually a couple of interesting studies in which physicians will order a diagnostic study, not because they think it's indicated medically, but just for the purposes of reassurance. Harvard researcher Arthur Barsky. What they found in those studies was that if people are sufficiently anxious to start with, then a negative test is not helpful. It does not reassure them. I went to my doctor quite often. I would get reassured and then I would be back there in another two months because the symptoms changed slightly. Sheila Murphy is a 50-year-old nonprofit administrator in Northampton who's been anxious about her health ever since her cousin died in childhood of leukemia. After Murphy's second son was born, the stress came out in the form of vague pain and discomfort in her chest. It took years before Murphy's doctors could assure her the symptoms were likely a combination of early menopause and anxiety. I did end up having quite a few tests. I had an EKG a couple of times. They sent me home with a monitor, and eventually I even saw a cardiologist. Morgan Griffin has also racked up his share of tests. For things like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, Lyme disease. So has Shelby Marowitz, who asked for a mammogram in her early 30s, sooner than guidelines suggest, despite having no symptoms of breast cancer. My doctor realized that she had to let me have a mammogram, or I was going to be calling every day and being like, I think it's a lump, I think it's changed. And this is why Arthur Barsky says hypochondria and the chain reaction it sets off in the healthcare system is a major driver of medical costs. They're terribly expensive patients to take care of. Barsky and his colleagues conducted a study of people who have unexplained symptoms with no medical basis. They accounted for 16% of all medical costs. Another health researcher at Columbia University put the annual cost of hypochondria in the billions of dollars. They often are getting the same study repeated more than once. They're seeing two different physicians for the same problem. There's this duplication of services. And there's little financial incentive for doctors or patients not to order tests. 
Most insurers pay by the procedure, a system called fee-for-service. Patients may be charged a copay of $20 to $100. That's much less than the actual price of, say, an MRI or a CAT scan. Our health insurance system protects patients from the cost of tests. Psychiatrist Benjamin Lipson. That encourages people to order expensive tests as though they're free, but they're not free because every month you get a premium statement and you have to pay for it. And there are costs beyond money, certainly for families and relationships. Shelby Marowitz's husband, Zach, himself a psychologist, is the kind of guy who rarely goes to the doctor. Zach used to believe Shelby when she insisted she was gravely ill. Then he began to get frustrated at the frequency of her episodes. Finally, he's accepted her hypochondria and the strain it puts on the whole family. Now there's a way to kind of almost predict, um, you know, she was going through a very stressful period. She was applying for new jobs. We were getting ready to move. At one point, I remember thinking, we're going to end up going to the hospital pretty soon. Because <laughs> it's just going to get to her. And sure enough... I woke up at four o'clock and I was just like, can't breathe. I, my heart's racing. And I felt like, you know, that elephant like sitting on your chest. I, I was positive that there was something really, really wrong. Like I was having a heart attack or collapsed lung. Like many times before, they found neighbors to watch their children, lost most of the night's sleep, missed a day of work. In the end, emergency room doctors found nothing and Shelby went home. But she's rarely reassured, no matter the evidence. My family's very healthy. Like, my grandparents have lived until their, you know, 80s and 90s. But I, I have big fears that I'm not going to be that lucky. So what can be done to relieve the burden of hypochondria on individuals and the system? In the case of Gene Weingarten, the newspaper reporter, his bluff was called. I got a fatal disease. In my case, it was hepatitis C. And once you have something real and serious to deal with, you don't bother with the phony baloney stuff anymore. Weingarten beat the hepatitis several years ago and no longer calls himself a hypochondriac. But for most people, contracting a potentially fatal illness is hardly a practical cure. Psychiatrists focus on treating the anxiety. Arthur Barsky is optimistic about a treatment called cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT. That's a method of psychotherapy that trains people to observe and control their own thought patterns. With funding from the National Institute of Mental Health, Barsky's studies have shown that CBT reduces symptoms of hypochondria. The challenge is to get the treatment to people who don't know they need it. Most of these patients are very resistant to any kind of psychiatric or mental health intervention. You know, they say, I don't need to talk to anybody. I need a biopsy. You know, I need another CAT scan. I don't need to sit there and talk about my problems. So in his current federally funded study, Barsky trained nurses in primary care practices to identify hypochondria and to use cognitive behavioral therapy right there in the office. A lot of these people are really caught in a cycle of, of symptom amplification. That is, the, their concern about it actually amplifies the symptom. They pay more attention to it, uh, and it seems to get worse. The treatment is primarily just sort of trying to, disin, to, to unravel that, to get people to understand uh, that you can have really severe, bothersome symptoms, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have a serious disease to cause them. Morgan Griffin has had some success with this method. You try and start to think through rationally, you know, what is the likelihood that I have this? You know, what is the evidence? 
And that actually does help. In 2010, Swedish researchers found that CBT can bring down the costs associated with hypochondria, although another group of researchers pointed out the treatment itself can be long and expensive. Arthur Barsky says there are also promising signs that antidepressants can relieve anxiety and reduce symptoms of hypochondriasis. But before the more clinical methods, Daniel Levy would rather start with the doctor-patient relationship. If you're good at what you do as a physician, you learn how to help such people uh, without subjecting them to tests they don't need. Uh, You learn to be direct and forthright about the probabilities. You learn to have them accept the risk of not diagnosing a very unlikely thing, to, to wait and watch. And uh, that is an important ingredient in good primary care medicine. From a policy perspective, economists and insurers are thinking up ways to reduce unnecessary testing. For example, give doctors a lump sum to treat patients so they'd be less inclined to spend money on mere peace of mind. Physician groups are pushing for medical malpractice reform, so doctors don't engage in what's called defensive medicine, especially when faced with obvious hypochondria. Many people in healthcare approach this as the patient's problem, uh, which, which I think is a mistake. But for now, most sufferers have to make their own way through their anxiety. Sheila Murphy decided to see a psychotherapist. She tried an emerging treatment called EMDR that desensitizes patients to anxiety triggers. And she took stress management classes that used deep breathing techniques. I have calmed down a lot. One thing that I've learned is, you know, if you wait a lot of times, symptoms go away. And if they don't, then that's when you pursue it. And some people just learn to adapt. Shelby Marowitz decided not to see a therapist, which her doctor had recommended. But she has found some relief with Paxil, a medication she takes for anxiety. That hasn't stopped her from asking her husband to buy her a full-body CAT scan for Christmas, a service not covered by insurance, just to make sure her doctors haven't missed anything. I wish I didn't have these feelings or these thoughts. or It's like I can't really keep it from happening, but I can... Con- kind of contain it like I know the things that I shouldn't do to make it worse. And it probably helps having a psychologist as a husband, too, because he doesn't let me go on those websites either. He's like, don't Google that. Whatever you do. One thing that definitely helped was for me having kids. Morgan Griffin. For someone who sees the body as a a kind of enemy um, who's always going to fail you in some sense, and it was sort of amazing to watch my wife's pregnancies and to see it all go so well and these wonderful kids come out of this sort of realization that our bodies work pretty well most of the time. But Griffin and Marowitz and Murphy know they're always going to need more reassurance than the typical patient. After all, as the old saying goes, even hypochondriacs get sick. That was Living with Hypochondria, The Real Costs of Imagined Illness. It was written and produced by Karen Brown, and it was edited by Claire Schoen and Fred Bever for WFCR Public Radio. The music was composed by John Townsend. 
As always, we want to hear your comments about the piece. Send us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week.